when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So, you know what happened. It's been a week since a cell of European ISIS-supporting death cultists launched a horrific attack on the city of Paris. None of us would be here right now if it were not for France, so we're going to try to do right by them. But why have so many American politicians chosen this moment to demonize the most defenseless people on the planet, refugees from war-torn Syria? We'll talk about this and what comes next with Massachusetts Representative Jim McGovern. Meanwhile, what do the terrorists of the so-called Islamic State hope to gain by attacking Parisians? As it turns out, there's something very specific they hope to destroy called the gray zone of coexistence. So what does that mean? We shall explain as best we can. And finally, while the world's been watching Paris, your Congress critters have moved a law through the House of Representatives that would make it easier for auto dealers to practice racial discrimination in the issuance of car loans. And guess what? This passed with massive bipartisan support. It's the latest chapter in a continuing story titled, You Probably Don't Have Enough Money to Buy Your Congressman's Vote, But Guess Who Does? Just Guess! And just so you know, we haven't forgotten about the insane thing Hillary Clinton said about 9-11 in the last Democratic debate. Uh, but that reminds me, did you know there was a Democratic debate? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Schulberg. Allons-y! Hi, everybody. Welcome back to So That Happened, uh, a podcast about, well, today it's going to be about some Pretty terrible things that happened. Bad week. Not Very, good. Not good. My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. I'm joined today uh, by Arthur Delaney. Hi. Who you know, and Zach Carter. I am really happy to be with you, Jason. Happy that you guys are here, too. Um, so, elephant in the room... Uh, some very, very bad people did a very, very bad thing to a very, very good city. Uh, the uh, Daesh, I think we're going to try to call them because they feel bad whenever we call them that, or ISIS, if you prefer. Uh, launched an attack in Paris, in the heart of Paris, in the heart of young Paris. They really went after a bunch of things I love, soccer and punk rock. And uh, and so, you know, I think we're all feeling a bit... Uh, burdened by this and not quite sure if there are things we can say to make people feel better. What's really terrible, the attack is terrible, um, but what has really uh, driven me wild this week has been watching the response from American politicians and American media, uh, which seems broadly unhinged um, and to be feeding the exact, to be Pursuing the exact same messaging that that Daesh or ISIS uh, actually wants, which is which is to drive a wedge between the overwhelming majority of Muslims in the world who are not Daesh or ISIS uh, and the rest of the world. Well, there are two responses. One is the sputtering over what what kind of war we're doing, yep, how we're going right. to kill them, and people are trying to figure that out. But the other thing is, what do we do with all the people fleeing the region that uh, they have helped to ruin? including Syria and Iraq, 
And none of the people who were involved in the attack in Paris were from Syria. But for some reason, it's all about what we do with Syrian refugees that we had pledged to accept into this country. It was not a few months ago that the plight of a dead Syrian refugee child on a beach galvanized the world. Was Well, it was supposed to galvanize the world into uh, acting on the refugees' behalf. Oh, yeah. It was, it was such an upworthy moment. Like, it was wow, very... We got to feel better about ourselves and help right. these people. Now that we're actually faced with the consequences of a bunch of refugees who aren't dead, we're finding it harder to deal with. But we're not even we're not even facing the consequences. Yeah, exactly. The refugees yeah. had nothing to do with what happened in Paris as yet. We have no evidence. It's as just yet our dumb fears. There, and there, but there was a, a passport which was Syrian, but believed to be a red herring. Because, like you said, this is exactly what ISIS wants for us to hate refugees. Right. They, they want us. They, the ISIS wants a clash of civilizations between between Islam and the West. And the more American politicians say, look, we, we are afraid of, of Muslims, even, even if they're widows and orphans fleeing here from, from cruelty, we don't want them here because they might be terrorists. That, that, that creates links, but that, that creates hostility between the West and, and people who don't like ISIS, who explicitly don't like ISIS, who are fleeing them. So, and it makes them more sympathetic to, to the ISIS cause. So we have to find some kind of fine line where we don't give them what they want while also killing them. Correct. Correct. Uh, the um, we're going to have on the show quite a number of deeper dives into this uh, coming up, but we're going to talk about just the top line of it to just try to get us into any kind of groove in the show. And we're going to talk about how it's sort of just disheveled American politics right now. Uh, Zach, I think it was you who mentioned before uh, before we started that there are two. Uh, candidates for president who happen to have the unique percept the, the unique perspective of what it's like to be a political refugee fleeing for your life. So I have to imagine that those candidates have come out foursquare with some compassionate talk about these refugees and the troubles they face. You will be stunned, Senators Mark, uh, not Mark, Senators uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, uh, who are both running for president. For the Republican nomination, have both said no more refugees. Okay, let's well, let's not do it. Um, Rubio, cowards, Rubio has actually kind of I think gone further than Cruz even on the rhetorical um, uh, sort of madness meter, uh, which is unusual. Where he he said he he drew an analogy to Nazi Germany, where he said, "Well, it's like saying we shouldn't have fought, you know, the Nazis because there were some good Nazis who weren't violent." The correct analogy <laughs> to Nazi Germany is the refugees. The Jewish refugees who were fleeing Nazi oppression—that's the correct analogy. He's it, and and by drawing by bringing World War II into it, he's basically saying like, yeah, we shouldn't have taken in the Jews in in 1938. That was the, that was the appropriate thing to do. And if you look back on polling, Ishan Theroux did a great piece for the Washington Post on this, pointing out that actually Americans were really really anti-Semitic and horrible in, 19, in the 1930s. Uh, in 1938, over 67 percent didn't want them to come in, and that seems like a pretty big moral blunder. In retrospect, and so for Rubio to invoke World War II as a refugee uh, point of comparison, I just found absolutely appalling. Ted Cruz has been like, come at me, bro, because President Obama was saying, you guys are scared of a bunch of orphans. <laughs> and Ted Cruz is like, you want to say that to my face? That's literally what he said. Uh, Ted come Cruz, back and say that to my face. Ted Cruz and his baby infant skin need to calm down. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's amazing how much uh, saber rattling and macho yeah. response there is. And yet, to a bunch of defenseless people. And yet, Congress can't get its act together and say, 
let's set the parameters of the war that we want. But right. they're simultaneously criticizing the president for what he's doing and also not doing anything to shape the outcome. I think that we can... Uh, I, 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 we, we should emphasize that point that Arthur Well, we'll we will be getting into it sure, throughout sure. this I, podcast. I hate to just speak a couple simple truths that are going to be difficult for anyone to get around, but here's, here's some facts. The reason there's uh, the reason there's a problem with accept, accepting refugees because they're Muslim. If this were if, if these were a bunch of you know Italians from Sicily, it wouldn't be an issue. If these were a bunch of Canadians, it wouldn't be an issue. If these were a bunch of any standard issue white Christians, it wouldn't be an issue. People in America and in Europe, there's still a high level of people who literally think Muslims are kind of mudbloods, and we don't want them in our country because of racial purity. That's why we're not accepting them. The second thing is that. There is not a lot of distinction to be made between any particular political operatives or or candidates plans to fight ISIS and what we're doing right now. The only objection they have to President Obama is that President Obama doesn't rip his shirt off and issue blood-curdling screams. They're not getting the emotional satisfaction out of Obama's rhetoric. That's why they're mad. Everything they suggest is just a stunted and stupid as Obama's suggesting. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure we can do a lot more than something stunted or stupid right now. I think that really defeating ISIS is probably not going to be something that we do quickly. It's probably not something we do with some kind of like macho expression of willpower. It's going to be long, painstaking. We're going to watch good people die. We're going to watch ISIS launch a couple more attacks. And we're going to have to do the really hard work of hurting and corralling a bunch of people who don't get along with each other to get along with each other and fight these guys off. I mean, look, the the I think the, the honest answer, if you, if you want to get rid of ISIS, is that you have a long and sustained ground war with you know, over 100,000 American troops on the ground in in Syria and Iraq. What the goal of that ground war is after ISIS is gone becomes very unclear because you still have Bashar al-Assad in Syria, uh, effectively operating as a client state of Russia at the moment. And the administration has said they don't want to have Assad in power. So even if we did a big time ground war to wipe out ISIS, what happens next is a very confusing and drawn and long, long process, which will involve a lot of a lot of violence and instability. Even if we even if we accomplish that goal, which the administration has said they, they are not interested in putting you know hundreds of thousands of American boots on the ground in in Syria and Iraq, and I think the American people are not really interested in that either. No, oh, it's unanimous! Not. It's unanimous. Don't send people, but surely put a bomb on it. Well, that's well, what everyone wants I've to heard, do. I've heard people talk about putting ground troops there, just not American ground troops. Or, yeah, magically conjure up our friends who we don't know who they are <laughs> or send special ops forces who Ben Carson thinks can I promise uh, you, you know, take an Iraqi oil field and thereby humiliate ISIS in front of the world. I promise you that the political hacks who run these campaigns and don't have any skin in the game and whose kids won't fight in any war and who will die happy and rich – uh, make it sound really easy, Arthur. We could just be doing things like putting putting people from the Muslim world on the ground to be our ground troops uh, in pro- by proxy. What's what's difficult to me is that's still kind of like quote unquote leading from behind. That's our stra- that's what we're doing. And what, and what people should know: the most important thing is that no one really disagrees. Everyone wants to just put a bomb on it, and that's yeah. what we're doing. And no one likes ISIS. Except for maybe these governors who seem to want to work with ISIS right now and, like, force refugees back into their arms. Uh, we should talk about the mayor of Roanoke. Uh, oh, that was so weird. It was the grossest of the stupid things. That, that guy needs out. to be dragged out of his office by the scruff of the neck 
and horsewhipped in the middle of Roanoke. Well, so he's a, a Democrat, yes. <laughs> yes. Who? who uh, uh, oh yeah. Let's be let's be perfectly fucking honest. Se- Seems to long. This madness is not by any means. The market's not been cornered on this stupidity by a party. Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire is just as cowardly as so, any so of these other governors. Much like Donald Trump would respond to immigration by bringing back Dwight Eisenhower's Operation Wetback. Didn't name Browning. it, though. Didn't name it. Uh, <laughs> this guy's like our, our policy of interning Japanese uh, people of Japanese ancestry in camps. Was smart was, and was, made it safe. Yeah, made it safe. But it was bad and a, and a disgrace. Yeah, he specifically said it was a time of high danger, and we did what needed to be done to fight the danger, which was put innocent Japanese people in. It. I don't know. Maybe he well, he's went a ma- to- I mean, he's a mayor. How much should people pile on this guy? A lot. Uh, the most. <laughs> yes. well, how about all? This is something that you learn in like elementary school. This this was an example of the United States doing something the wrong way. That's that's what they teach kids in school. The internment camps were bad. They were they were the most embarrassing thing that the United States did during World War II. And uh, and that's an example of how not to handle. I'm sure. A, a I'm sure. At the time that this is aired, that guy will have apologized or said something or other to it. The guy belongs in the stocks. How's that? He's in the digital <laughs> stocks right now. He's we, got uh, the stocks of self-satisfied <laughs> clicks through Facebook. We, is where that guy's uh, <laughs> face and arms are dangling out. There are better mayors in the world. There, we we uh, we had uh, this this kind of thing, kind of like. Briefly effed up the uh, uh, Democratic debate. Did you guys know there's a Democratic debate? Probably not, because the whole thing's rigged for Hillary Clinton to win. <laughs> it was hard. I tuned in briefly. At, uh, bad debate. Saturday night, uh, man. Saturday night. It was like it was. It was. Yeah, there was a debate Saturday night on CBS. No one watched it. The, the foreign policy focus only made it more of a Hillary Clinton show. It was, it was so hard to, to follow and watch. It was weird. Can I just say, I, I found I found Bernie's reaction to the change in questions to be perplexing. Because, A, of course, now news organizations are obligated to talk about this. The way we were obligated to talk about Paris. Yeah. He should, be, he should expect that. He's running for president. Or the way a president would be obligated. Yeah. He doesn't get to pick and choose what issues he's going to deal with today because he feels bad about it. Or he's not prepared. You gotta get prepared. Like, he, like after a terrorist attack, Second he'd walk all, into the briefing room and talk about social security. I'm a little bit. Maybe I'm a little bit wrong, but I be, I thought all this time that Bernie Sanders meant to contrast his foreign policy vision with Hillary Clinton's. So I was surprised when he was. Oh, I don't want to talk about this. I was like, dude, you know what? You just stepped on a rake. Sorry, that's the only I way know, I can put but, it. But the but other thing Hillary is, Clinton's is that foreign policy p- 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 like positions are not positions that most Democrats agree with. So even though she said them very articulately and very forcefully, I think she was also advocating positions that people just don't really agree with in the Democratic Party in the base. Well, that may not be. That may be. That's neither here nor there. I'm talking about uh, the Sanders camp. Really boof this. His campaign manager said, "Look, we need our opening statement to introduce him to the world." And our, our page editor, Paige Lavender, was like, introduce him to the world. The world's not watching. The world's watching college football tonight. There's not a single person <laughs> tuned to this debate doesn't know goddamn well who Bernie Sanders in is. No one needs to be introduced to him. That's crazy. So, but that wasn't the, like, uh, just to, uh, I'm going to shift from Paris now, briefly. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the craziest thing that happened at the Democratic debate that nobody watched. The craziest, actually, you know what this kind of does have to do with Paris? Because, it does. It's... Because we, we, once we ended up now in the part of the conversation where we talk about financial services industry, uh, Sanders and O'Malley, both, and frankly, John Dickerson, by quite rightly, you know, went after Clinton on her ties to Wall Street. 
and Hillary Clinton's response on that question was was pretty was crazy. It was gross. I mean, it's it's the grossest thing that it's, like anybody said in the campaign who is not named Ted Cruz or Donald Trump. It's really um, disgusting. How is it that that Hillary Clinton repudiated terrorists by taking donations from Wall Street? How does that fucking compute? What's amazing is that she thought this was her campaign. Obviously, thought this was a good line. Yes, she this was it. a this, rehearsed this was line. Material. Yeah. Yes, this was a line. That she tried to test it out in front of a room full of people, and they said, yeah, yeah, definitely go with 9-11 is the reason I took Wall Street donations. What is the meaning? Is, uh, I, Look, she, she advocated for, uh, for relief, for the economic relief, for that economic aid, for that area of, of New York when she was a she, senator. It's true. Uh, but it is, it is just obviously, obviously politicizing a tragedy to say she that she, she's popular on Wall Street because of that. That is not why people give campaign do- donations. What she advocated for was to be left alone on the subject. You know, Alex Perrine at Gawker wrote about this, and he said the proper response from Hillary Clinton's perspective is a lot of people from Wall Street are giving me money because a lot of people from Wall Street think I will win and they think this money will influence them. They're wrong. That's what you say. And then the whole thing's kind of put to bed. Yeah, that would have been clever. It would have yeah, been good. But yeah. that, that also wow. Instead, she was like, I, 9-11. Rudy Giuliani. Well, but look, if she's down verb, don't pick on me. Nine eleven. But if she says what Perrine said that she should have said, which I agree would have been a much better answer, that then tells. Well, no, Wa- that's a political hack answer too. But it's just a quality political. hack. But it also it also tells people on Wall Street, don't give me any money because I'm not going to do what she wants, and she wants them to keep giving her, her money. Right, but I thought the, <laughs> I thought the secret scam was that Wall Street knows that she has to talk shit about them, and they're cool with it. I just want to. This is this is something that Hunter Walker from Yahoo News reported the day after. This is like the most mind bending thing. Uh, John Podesta, who works for the Clinton campaign, came out to defend her to reporters. This is this is Hunter Walker's account. Podesta, who was wearing a fleece jacket that bore the logo of Equilibrium Capital, a one billion dollar financial investment company, company, also pointed out that Clinton met with union leaders who represented Wall Street area workers in the aftermath of 9-11. It's just an unfair attack, Podesta said. So Podesta, he gets up in the morning. He's like, God, I got to put the I got to do the damage control on this Wall Street shit. Which which fucking Wall Street company's fleece should I wear today? <laughs> <laughs> it's like kind of unbelievable. It it's is, it's like it's as if he was wearing a golden fleece. It is kind of unbelievable, but <laughs> but but are you an Argonaut? Wait, what's Arthur? A, what's that's a, Jason sitting across from me. What's, what's amazing? What's amazing about this is that once again we've cycled back to a terrible tragedy happening in Paris, and it's like the best the people who are running the show can do is use it as some kind of wedge to their own political career. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. 
For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. We're back, and uh, now it's time to talk about the bad news of the past week. Joining me now to talk about it, we have Jessica Schulberg. Hello. And Akbar Ahmed. Hi. Both of whom cover foreign policy for the Huffington Post, and uh, who we've had on the show before. So we're really grateful to have you guys back. So what I wanted to talk about to begin with, because it seems to be the first and most relevant issue to arise from the Paris attacks, uh, is this concept that others have delineated as the gray zone of coexistence. What are we going to call them? I mean, ISIS or Daesh is what we're considering calling them, which is their Arabic name. Right. Right. So, okay, let's just be hurtful to them and call them Daesh. Okay. One of the things that ISIS has, has expressly wanted to do is destroy the gray zone of coexistence. I just called them ISIS. <laughs> I'm terrible. Daesh. Akbar, tell me about the gray zone of coexistence and what it means. There's no better way to sum up the gray zone of coexistence than what I was doing this morning, listening to One Direction classic hits on my way here. Zen Malik is the gray zone of coexistence. Coexistence is you can be of Pakistani descent, Jordanian, Lebanese, whatever it is, Indonesian. You can be from the Muslim world, live in the Western world, and incorporate both of those things, right? You can be a musician who's also like a pro-Palestine activist, like, like Zan Malik is. Um, that's kind of what it is. It's saying Muslims can live in the West, Westerners can live in the Muslim world. This is not some civilizational, uh, you know, do parallelism sort of thing. And so this is, this is obviously a kind of a rich target for ISIS, uh, who want to paint their caliphate, such as it is, as the one and only refuge for people who live in the Islamic world. And so it's specific. They specifically hate the idea that Muslims can live in the West and that Westerners want to live in, in the Islamic world as they, as, as was once typical, uh, I think very it's typical. Always, right. It's always been typical places like Beirut, especially uh, places like Jordan, uh, where there's been a lot of crossover. But I have to think that the worst people in the world right now, as far as ISIS are concerned, well, I mean, it's hard to say, but the actual refugees, they must hate the refugees. ISIS must hate the refugees. Daesh must hate the. This is going to take some getting used right, right. to. Da- Daesh but, as a but I am, as the I am, I am, I am committed. I am committed to insulting 
these bastards as often as I can. Okay. But so Daesh, they must hate these refugees. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sort of it sort of spoils their narrative that this is the refuge for all Muslims. When you see all the Muslims saying, "We don't want to live under you. We're going to go to Paris." Right. I think it probably makes them look bad. And what really disturbs me about what's happened over the past few days, I'm glad we got the weekend to not do anything stupid. I think people work up early Monday morning rededicating themselves doing stupid things. So all these governors, <laughs> some 26 governors, uh, who, who now say their states won't welcome uh, refugees of any kind, well, from Middle Eastern refugees specifically. Well, it's, it's easy to posture, right? Like ISIS can also say we'll provide great refuge to all these refugees. That doesn't mean they're going to do it. I mean, um, it's, am, I, am I being hyperbolic to say they've capitulated to ISIS? I think what's interesting is when you talk about ISIS phrasing their entire worldview is this big clash of civilizations that Muslims can't live among Jews and Christians. You you hear a pretty similar rhetoric coming out of the mouths of a lot of these governors and specifically Marco Rubio saying, you know, President Obama isn't treating this as what it is, which is, you know, we are at war. This is a civilizational war. And I think he would defend himself by saying, oh, we're at, we're at war with extremist Islam. We're at war with the really, really the, the religious intolerant Muslims. But the way that some of these people are phrasing it, it really does kind of bring you back to Samuel Huntington's thesis titled A Clash of Civilizations, in which he basically said that ultimately there is going to be this sort of end of the world clash between one of, I think he broke it into eight subgroups that are very, very broad. And one of those groups is Muslims. And his thesis is just that, that Muslims won't be able to live peacefully among other groups. And to that point, what I'd say is, I think we can think about how the governors are sort of victimizing and targeting refugees and how ISIS hates them. But let's also think about how the refugees and broadly Muslims living in the West feel. Because the more you hear this rhetoric, the more you are equating saying something like we can't let in refugees from high-risk countries from the Muslim world is saying the Muslim world is ISIS. You know, it's sort of what famously the Atlantic published in January saying that ISIS is the true Islam and, you know, this is what Islam really is and the basic sort of concepts of Islam are what is being perpetrated in Syria and Iraq right now, the vast majority of the world's Muslims would disagree, right? They don't live that way. Um, and I think that that is something that refugees, that Muslims living in the West, that Muslim Americans are taking really personally. Well, what then are factors? Because we, we have seen people in Europe who've moved to the West, who've, who've well, probably it's more accurate well, to say that they're the sons and daughters of people who have moved to the West and live in places like Paris, live in places like Belgium. What makes them susceptible to recruitment from ISIS if they're already in Europe and they already are technically in a refuge? Right. Uh, what makes them susceptible? What makes them say, oh, yeah, I want to be bombed by French right. eagles I, of death metal airplanes? I, I think there's been some really good work done on this, right? Saying, you know, looking at the Bandia in Paris, in France, and looking at other examples of Muslim alienation, which it's communities that are already alienated. Like, this is the standard they go to. And, you know, frankly, it's not like Many communities are marginalized and alienated in a lot of countries, but this is a really easy, like, manufactured, packaged, you can run to this banner, here's where you take out your frustration and victimization in your society if you happen to be brown. Many of these people, especially in France, were not previously religious, right? Before they became radicalized, they were regular French teens. They were going out, they were drinking, they were doing drugs, they continued to do those things. So it's not like they suddenly woke up and said, yo, I want to stop wearing skinny jeans and only wear things that, like, come up above my ankle, they kept wearing their skinny jeans. This was just a sort of channel, I think, in a lot of cases. The, uh, I mean, I have to imagine that there is also probably a, an economic problem there. Yes. 
because what we've seen in the Middle East is that the main channel of recruitment comes from these well-educated populations who then have no economic opportunity to find unemployment in places like Saudi Arabia. And you just have people uh, emptily laying about that need something in their lives, and along comes al-Qaeda. And it is usually these teens or young adults who maybe don't have a lot of a lot of promising prospects in their future. Um, I think you see kind of what Akbar was describing, that maybe they're not super religious, but they're already sort of alienated. They're already sort of looking at limited options. And here's this group saying, you can be a man, you can be a hero, you can, you know, do something worthwhile with your life. And I think that can be pretty appealing. And I think it's really upsetting for people who, who have identified that. For instance, I was talking this week to a Gulf diplomat who used to be posted in Paris for many years. And he was talking about, look, we would tell the French government, literally, go talk to these Muslim and Arab youth. And in France, it, it's this competing thing. In France, they have what's called laïcité, which is, you know, the state is completely secular. You can't even take census polls that do religion, Christianity or Muslim. And they were like, we can't, we don't want to do talk to that rich on the basis, which is like their principles, understandable. Right. But then that becomes the target population if you're not doing talk to that rich to these folks who are much more likely than other poor, disadvantaged youth to pick up this standard. And so I think the- it's worth noting that that's slightly different in the U.S. I mean, I was talking to an analyst yesterday, and I was sort of a Muslim analyst, and I was sort of surprised to hear him say, you know, the Muslims have it a lot worse in Paris and parts of Europe than they do here. I mean, there's obviously Islamophobia. There's obviously people calling for constant surveillance and even to tear down mosques. But overall, I mean, President Obama does have a Muslim outreach group, and he does sort of work on on the interfaith platform to reach out to people on that level. Yeah, I mean, it's really disturbing to hear so many people actually turn their back on what President George W. Bush said about <laughs> Muslims after 9-11, which was to leave them the fuck alone. Uh, right. Um, and just, just on that point, I would also say, I think what people sort of miss is that Daesh is a, what's called a takfiri group. So they say, we are the right kind of Muslims, you're the wrong kind. So for the West to say you're the right kind and they're the wrong kind perpetuates that, that same kind of thinking again. Um, just want to briefly, uh, I guess, now dip in. No, it's, well, I, mean, I think it's just, we have to talk about it. Um, but the, the, the response is inevitably going to come uh, because of these attacks. Uh, Maru Barjani, who's the intelligence and security chief in Pakistan, has has made news recently uh, because he's of the mind that ISIS can actually be quickly defeated in a matter of weeks or months, provided that they're a militarily defeated. That begins with retaking territory in Iraq and Syria and helping the Kurdish Peshmergas, who are very good at clearing, but not so good at at holding territory that they've kicked Daesh out of. Uh, And then an international coalition comes along and also denies uh, Daesh members' movement across borders. They close down uh, monetary resources. Uh, They uh, rally a more moderate form of Islam to uh, rise to the fore in people's collective imaginations. I'm so averse to talking about quick fixes. We had Jen Saki in here to do drinking and talking a long time ago, and she talked about the challenge of when everyone's baying for a quick fix to a problem that actually takes numerous steps to solve. But is there any realistic chance that this guy could be right in in Kurdistan? You know, I I love the Kurds. I cover them all the time. I would say like 60% of my beat is writing about the Kurds. But they have their own interests, right? And what Masoor Barzani is describing there is what's happening, um, which is what a lot of the 2016 candidates have described too. Jess and I wrote about this this week. We are currently seeing 
ground assaults by the Kurdish Peshmerga and airstrikes by an international coalition trying to deny foreign fighters and ISIS money. Um, well, I think he wants to add ground troops. Ground troops. Yeah. Right. And I think, I don't see a quick fix sort of emerging on the ground troop basis, because I think, especially like with the Kurds or with partners on the ground, right, they have their own interest in which parts of Iraq they want to retake. They don't want to retake necessarily Mosul, which is understandable. That's a Sunni Arab area. They wouldn't be welcomed with open arms. It wouldn't work if you had a fully Kurdish and like American ground force going in. So I think those are kind of complicating factors. And I think beyond that, I mean, like you said, it sounds it sounds very appealing. I mean, after a huge attack like this, you sort of want people, you sort of want to hear what President Hollande was saying, which is, we are at war, we will be merciless. You know, it, it's comforting. It's saying... Well, he we, said pitiless. <laughs> sorry. It's like, we haven't done enough, but now we're going to do more. Um, but what you don't hear any of these people talking about is like, well, why the hell have we not deployed thousands of ground troops yet? We've got a lot of soldiers. Like, why aren't they there? And I think you and I were actually in the kitchen a couple months ago talking about what would a large-scale U.S. ground invasion in Iraq and Syria look like? Right now, it would look like the U.S., a lot of Europe, and some Gulf countries in a coalition against Iran, China, Russia, and Syria, which sounds a lot like the start of World War III to me. And so I don't think anyone's really talked about how you can take a very active, very visible on-the-ground role in Syria without setting off this sort of domino effect of bad intentions. And as for militarily defeating the group, I mean, I think people, for all we talked about after 9-11, how we need to learn how to fight unconventional wars rather than wars against states, I don't think anyone's really grasped that we never defeated al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is what gave birth to ISIS. And right. for all that we invaded Iraq and took territory and cut off their financial flows, at this point in, in the world, you only need a few people and a limited number of resources to launch these large-scale devastating attacks. And there's there's no way that you can really just completely militarily defeat a group that can continue to sort of thrive and evolve with only a few members. I want to try to end on a happy note. Uh, one of the things that I think uh, came out in the 2016 transom was Donald Trump was uh, mystified. He wants to build a big, beautiful safe zone in Syria. And he, he especially, he talked about how the weather in Syria didn't understand why people would move from Syria to colder climes. And I want to just let Donald Trump off the hook a little bit because in the past, I've wondered that myself. And I recently had the opportunity to speak to a man from Sudan. And I asked him, I asked him, why is it that so many Sudanese refugees uh, settle in Minnesota? And I expected, because I, because it's such a, it's such a shock to move from Sudan to Minnesota. And I expected him to say something about uh the actual climate change. And he looked at me and said, how can you ask me that question? We moved to Minnesota because it's the greatest place on earth and the people there are the nicest people you'll ever meet. And then he went on for like 10 minutes to basically give like a better tourist spiel for Minnesota <laughs> than I've ever heard from Minnesotan. That's remarkable. It was really remarkable. He was just like, I was fired up from Minnesota after he finished. <laughs> I was really, really nice. fired up. So, so I, so Minnesota, the world looks to you for guidance on how to properly treat people. You've never let us down. Well, I mean, Lutefisk. We'll leave that aside. Uh, we look to you, Minnesota, to help us out in our time of need.
And welcome back. Uh, joining us now, first of all, Arthur Delaney, our good friend. Hi. And from Congress, joining us now is Massachusetts Congressman Jim McGovern, who this week led the attempt to defeat the House's anti-refugee bill, and who has additionally called for Congress to vote on a new authorization for the use of military force, or AUMF, to define the conflict with ISIS. Congressman McGovern, thanks for being here with us today. Happy to be with you. So, Congressman, you led the Democratic side of the floor debate, and you were against this bill that the House approved overwhelmingly on Thursday that would add another layer to the process of vetting refugees from Iraq and Syria. So why are you against that? Well, because it's, it's more than just adding another layer. Um, basically, they're setting a standard that would make it impossible you know, for any refugee from Syria or Iraq to be re- resettled in the United States. Uh, and look at the uh, the people fleeing Syria are fleeing the most god awful war and terror imaginable, um, and we're talking about people who are mostly widows and orphans. We're talking about elderly people who have lost their entire families, who are trying to be reunite, reunited with a distant family member here in the United States. The idea that we would just you know sh- turn our backs on these people uh, goes against the very best traditions uh, and values of this country. I mean. Uh, it, it is uh, it is not only insensitive, but it uh, again to me uh, goes against uh, the very best of what we're about. And uh, you know the, the people we're talking about, uh, they're no threat to anybody in the United States. Um, these are people who are, you know who are you know on the front lines fleeing uh, ISIL. Uh, they're, they're looking for safe haven, and um, you know and to 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 politicize the tragedy and. Paris, uh, the way the Republicans did, you know, and to play the fear card and to, uh, you know, gin up this whole debate, um, which quite frankly is ugly uh, and demeaning, uh, I, I think uh, is beneath this Congress. And, um, you know, the, the, the fear card was played and, you know, uh, obviously the Republicans all went along with it. Uh, too many Democrats did, too. Oh, uh, Congressman. And I regret that. Congressman Jim McGovern, uh, is the debate muddy by the fact that people don't know what we already do to vet refugees, or, or do you think your colleagues had a grasp of, of that? Well, look, uh, I think a lot of us tried to uh, say, you know, set forward the facts about how difficult it is for a refugee from uh, Syria to be resettled in the United States. I mean, there's all these you know, agencies and departments that have to sign off on it. The FBI ultimately has a veto uh, power over anybody coming here, but it, it's it's a long, arduous, thorough process that, on average, takes about two to three years for somebody to be able to to make it here. Uh, and uh, you know, we try to get those facts out. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people, you know, who uh, voted against the bill understood that we do have a, a, a very good process in, in place. But I, I I wouldn't underestimate you know the fear card. I mean, you heard some of the debate on the House floor. I mean, the Republicans characterize this as you either want to protect the American people or you don't. Um, they, you know, they 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 you know, they set up the debate in very polarizing uh, terms that uh, you know, for I think for some members, um, even some Democratic members, uh, it, it uh, you know, it, it just they felt that uh, you know it was it was a politically tough vote, and I get it, uh, but we're talking about people here. We're talking about human right. beings. We're talking about children. We're talking about widows. We're talking about elderly people. We're talking about people who, you know, 
who are, are the most vulnerable populations in the world. Well, uh, and we're about to just shut the door in their face. I mean, some people have argued that the smart thing to do is the wrong thing in this situation. Uh, Chris Eliza of the Washington Post said that uh, it, it may sound bad to send Syrian refugees back into the maelstrom of terror and pain that ISIS is sure to wreak upon them, but it's quote-unquote smart politics. And Kevin Drum of Mother Jones says that the uh, he feels, quote, the liberal response to this should be far more measured. We should support tight screening. We should highlight the fact that we're accepting a pretty modest number of refugees. We should act like this is a legitimate thing to be concerned about and work from there, but we should not correct Republicans or opponents of this bill by pointing out that they're grasping at fears. How do you respond to people like that? Well, first of all, uh, we do have an exhaustive, thorough process already in place. I mean, and I, I think that ought to be acknowledged. Uh, people ought to tell the truth when they're talking about uh, this issue, number one. Two, uh, could it be improved? I mean, are there ways to enhance uh, this process uh, so that we could feel even better about uh, you know the screening process? Probably, and we should talk about that. And, uh, and I think there was a willingness um, uh, to, to try to work out a, 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 some, a, some consensus on this issue. Unfortunately, uh, the Republicans decided to shut out the Democrats on this uh, discussion. Both Benny Thompson um, from the Homeland Security Committee and uh, uh, Zoe Lofgren from the Judiciary Committee offered to, tr- you know, to bring some constructive ideas that might it actually enhance, uh, you know, the uh, the screening process forward? And you know, the Republicans wouldn't even share with them the text of the bill uh, that they were drafting. So, you know, let's 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 be clear: the Republicans aren't interested in trying to uh, to do something to better protect the American people or to make this process better. Uh, if they were, they would understand the importance of consultation. This is pure politics. I mean, that's what the, what the, what this is. The other thing too is, uh, you know, I mean, Chris. Um, Solicitor is, is right. It, it probably, you know, given the, you know, given public opinion, maybe it is good politics to uh, to turn your back on these refugees. But it's not the right thing to do. Um, and I believe in the long run that what seems like good politics in the short term, you know, in the long in the long term, you know, you know, may not play out so well. You know, we've had some we've had some you know ugly chapters in our in our past dealing with. Uh, you know, Japanese Americans in internment camps during World World War II, turning our backs on Jewish refugees coming into the United States. You know, fleeing fleeing the Nazis. Uh, at the time, you know, that, that was a popular thing to do to turn your back on these vulnerable populations. T- today, we look back on that and 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 cringe that how could we have been so insensitive? How could we have done that? Look, I you know you know we could talk about this as a political issue, but every once in a while we ought to talk about things in terms of what is the right thing to do. Congressman, uh, you led the debate against the refugee bill. You also have led a debate in favor of war authorization. So that's the other half of this. We're, what's the best way to bomb ISIS, and, and what should Congress be doing? Well, first of all, I, I, I have serious uh, um, questions uh, and reservations about you know, our policy of just bombing everybody. Uh, we've been bombing for as long as I can remember, uh, and that bombing continues to intensify. One of the reasons why we have a, a refugee crisis is because we're bombing, Assad's bombing, Russia's bombing, everybody's bombing. Uh, but there's bombing going on all the time in Syria. 
there's no opportunity for civil society to to gain a foothold and, and to and to get stronger. I get, the reason why I want an AUMF is because we are not we we are we are expanding wars. We are fighting new wars uh, in Iraq and in Syria, and uh, there's no congressional uh, authorization for the use of military force. We're justifying this expansion of our military footprint in this part of the world based on a, on an AUMF going back to 2001. Um, you know, it's 2015. Uh, you know, we, we, and we're fighting different wars here. Uh, Congress has a constitutional responsibility. And whether you agree with me that, you know, we ought to pull, we, we ought not to be bombing the way we're we, we bomb every day. We ought to. We ought. We ought. We ought not to be expending our military footprint. Or you agree with someone like Lindsey Graham, who says, you know, anything goes. We should. We should expand our military footprint. No matter where you come down on this issue, you ought to. All we ought to all agree that Congress has a constitutional role here. Do you and think that, that? And we ought to debate these wars, and we ought to vote on them. Do you think the? Do you think the average member of Congress is maybe just? not aware of their constitutional role because from my perspective it's either they're too dumb to understand what the constitution says they're supposed to do or they're just cowardly they like to sit back and be able to criticize what happens in a war without ever having to sign their name on a dotted line behind it i mean i sort of kind of respect lindsey graham for being willing to take the most bloodthirsty shirt imaginable and add a signature to it so many others would not. What? 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 Uh, what, what I, 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 I think. I think the problem is the latter. I think this is cowardice. I really. I think it's moral cowardice. So the good news, Congress, you're not stupid. That's good. Yeah, news. No, I, and, and, and I think I, you know we have talked about this issue enough. Uh, we have, uh, you know, um, we've done press conferences. We have done letters. We have done, you know, privilege resolutions. We have tried. You know, I think everybody understands that. Um, that we have a responsibility here. I think, and I think, um, you know. And by the way, these letters that we that we have sent have included doves like myself um, and hawks, you know, who want to expand our, our military footprint in, in the region. But all coming together on the fact that we do have a role here, and um, you know, and part of the, you know, I, I, part of my frustration uh, from some of my Republican friends is that they criticize the White House all the time for not consulting with Congress enough, for not, you know, for doing th- too many things on their own. Uh, but yet, when it comes to the issue of war, <laughs> you know, they have no problem with the White House, you know, doing everything on their own because it's comfortable to sit on the sidelines and to be a critic and not have to take any responsibility. Uh, war has become war has become too easy. Um, and uh, and we need to make it tougher. So, uh, uh, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Governor, the, the White House says they, they've got like a three-layer cake of permission. The, the foundation is the Constitution with uh, the president as commander of the, the armed forces, and then there's the 2001 authorization, yeah, I mean, the 2002 when, when authorization. The White, when the White House talks about these 2001 authorizations or the authorization for the war in Iraq, I cringe because it is ludicrous. To suggest that those AUMFs um, anticipated that we would be doing what we're doing in Syria and even our reengagement in Iraq, and I would even argue that even what we're doing in Afghanistan right now is a big stretch from what Congress contemplated when they voted for that AUMF, you know, back in 2001. So, you know, it, it, I, I get it. I mean, I'm sure you could find lawyers in the White House that will try to 
figure out ways to justify all I this. Mean, but to the credit of the White House, though, the White House has, to their credit, they have submitted an AUMF to Congress several months ago true. and asked us to act. Um, so, you know, I don't agree with their AUMF, but they did it. And it's now our job to say we want to restrict that or we want to expand that or we want to keep it the same. But the ball is in our court right now. We can't blame the president for this anymore. Well, what, what if, we, it's our fault. What if Congress repealed the previous authorizations and gave the Obama administration and future administrations a new one that was just as broad? Would Would you be supportive of that, or do you want some specific restrictions? Because some people propose AUMFs that say no ground troops, right. a limited duration, quarterly reporting. What what kind of features? Yeah. First of all, I, I am for repealing all the previous AUMFs because, they're, to me, they're no longer relevant, and, I, and they shouldn't be on the books so that people can justify whatever the hell they want to do now based on those. Secondly, look, I, 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 here, here's my view. I think that what we're doing now you know, is tantamount to the same old, same old. Um, and I'm looking at, you know, our involvement in Afghanistan and in, in Iraq and now in Syria and trying to figure out well, what's the end game here? What is the plan? I don't think we ought to ever go to war unless you have a clearly defined mission, and that is a beginning, a middle, and an end. I don't know how any of these are supposed to end. I can't get a straight answer from anybody, whether in the administration or people who support you know, expanding war in these areas. Uh, I can't get a, a, an explanation of, you know, how this, how this ends. Well, simple you know, logic. What are, we, what are we trying to, to do here? And I would just tell you this, that, you know, this, you know we're, we, are, we are bombing every day in Syria. You know, right. it is an absolute mess. Um, we are, we, you know, we, we continue to be involved militarily in Iraq. You know, the, the sectarian divides in that country are, are greater than ever. Um, and we have plans for more military action. We don't have a plan for reconciliation. And Afghanistan, you know, there's, it's a war that will never end. And now we're being told, get used to it, because we need to be there for the next 50 to 100 years. I, look, at, we, we need to, we, we, I, I think the time has come to, to kind of reexamine what we're doing. And maybe there are different ways to approach some of these things. You know, you know everybody talks about being tough. Um, well, I want to be tough, too, but I want to be effective. Um, and I don't want to be doing the same thing over and over and over again that gives you the same result, which well, is just more chaos, more violence, more uncertainty. What's crazy uh, to me is that the 2001 AUMF, civil logic dictates that when it was written, it explicitly excluded the possibility that there would be ISIS in 2015. Right. Because the military force that was authorized at the time was surely going to be genius, right? And stop this from happening. I mean, yeah, th- that we're even still kicking around this tatty old AUMF from 14 years ago. Yeah, it demands I mean, sort of a different approach. Yeah, as I said, when people ju- use those old AUMFs to justify what we're doing now, it makes you want to cringe because. You know, one is I don't believe that they believe that, um, but the fact that they use that, I, I think, you know, is, um, you know, it really is cringeworthy. And we need to, you know, so, uh, but, but, but look, all, we're, all I'm suggesting here, you know, we could, we could have a debate on what the policy ought to be, but we ought to have Congress do its job, and that shouldn't be a radical, a controversial idea. And if members of Congress don't want to go on record as wanting for war or against war, well, that's too bad. Go get another job somewhere else, because part of our job here is to do those things. 
and 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 we haven't, and we are setting bad precedent for the next president, the president after that. Um, you know, uh, you know, again, uh, the precedent being that, uh, you know, we, we we don't we don't need to involve you in these issues of war and peace, and I think that's a I think it's very very dangerous. So it sounds like uh, Congressman Jim McGovern, you're in favor of an authorization, or at least a debate over an authorization. It's about the principle of. Uh, the three powers of government, but that you don't really uh, have a, a, an idea of, of what you want to see militarily done in the Middle East. I, I believe, for me, you know, um, I believe we ought to be reducing our military footprint in the Middle East, not expanding it, because I don't think that these wars have made us more secure. They have resulted in a more chaotic, more volatile Middle East. Uh, and, um, you know, and I... And, 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 and that's not in our national security address. And um, and so when everybody talks about, you know, we need to, uh, I've heard people today talk about, well, we need to send more ground troops or we need to drop more bombs. Um, my question is, well, we've been doing that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, 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 and what do we have to show for it? I mean, the war in Iraq was a disaster. I mean, uh, Iraq is an absolute mess. The... Uh, Afghanistan. I mean, we still have a government that is corrupt. Uh, you know, we still are, you know, battling the same old, you know, forces that we were, you know, from the very beginning. And in Syria, you know, um, you know, we're just part of a, an international group that is bombing every day, and um, it is making it impossible for there to be any political solution in Syria. And you know, uh, and again, it's producing. Uh, a refugee population like we haven't seen, um, you know, in, 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 in many, many years. So um, I, 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 I think we need more imagination and we need a different approach here. But, you know, uh, but, you know whether you agree with me um, or you agree with someone like Lindsey Graham, we all ought to agree that whatever we're doing there, Congress ought to codify in an AUMF and there ought to be a debate and a vote on it. And sometimes during debates, um, we actually... Um, can improve things, and we can make things better. Sometimes we point out faults in a, in, a, in a particular policy that we might want to correct, but with no debate and no vote and no responsibility, war has become too easy in this country. And um, you know, and every time there's a there's a problem somewhere, you know, we're all rushing to drop more bombs or deploy more advisors or send more military weapons. And I think it has not resulted in anything that we can feel good about. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened.
And we're back. Thank you for listening to that. I'm Jason Lincolns, back with Zach Carter. Hey. And coming to us now on the phone from Boston is Shaheen Nazirapur, our good friend. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's really nice to talk to you, Shaheen. I've, I've heard a rumor that you may have your dog with you. Is that true? Uh, you know, I, it's unconfirmed, uh, but sources do suggest that he is with me. That's correct. All right. That sounds really good. Cooper's a big sweetheart. We talked to some him. people on Deep Background about your dog. Like, every day we talk about them. <laughs> yeah, we're, uh, we're stalkers. Um, so today we're going to talk about um, what, what has to be one of the most dispiriting pieces of legislation, a completely gross piece of legislation. This is disgusting. That, that was passed this week. Uh, slipped in and out, really uh, used the cover of the Paris attacks and the hullabaloo surrounding it is pretty good cover. Got this junk in and out of Congress. I assume it's on its way at some point to Obama's desk where he will be. It's, it's out of the House, so it's, I don't think it'll get to the Senate uh, or, or it, it has to deal with the Senate, too. Okay, good. So it's, it's not it's not a done deal yet, but this this was pretty ugly. Right. Uh, OK, so tell us about tell us about this. The, the latest in which people with money lobby the Congress to do terrible things. So if you go to a car dealership and you buy a car, your car dealer is allowed to issue a loan. Right to you to buy the car. That's right. It's pretty convenient. Works for everybody. You give this person, you know, the, this this dealer your credit information. They send it to the bank. The bank sends back information saying, "Here's the appropriate interest rate that you should be charged." This dealer is then given the authority to mark up the interest rate to a higher rate, and the dealer gets a cut of that money. They do it. So there's clear incentives to charge people higher rates. It just so happens, and there are lawsuits going back to the 1990s documenting this. It just so happens that people of color, black borrowers. Hispanic customers, Latino customers, Asian American customers end up getting marked up more often than white customers, and they end up paying higher rates when they get marked up than white customers who get marked up. And you don't really know this when this is happening in the in the auto dealer. You you just you know they just tell you here's your interest rate. Um, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, has taken steps to deal with this, saying, look, if you want to continue this compensation practice, dealers. You have to, you absolutely have to make sure this is not racist, that this doesn't end up disproportionately affecting borrowers of color. Or you should maybe be safer and stop it. And they've gone after Honda. They have gone after Ally Bank. Uh, they, they've returned over uh, over $100 million to consumers who have been overcharged for, for no other reason other than the color of their skin. I mean, people in the exact same credit situation getting, uh, getting, getting higher rates because they are borrowers of color. This bill that, just, that 88 Democrats just voted for, 88 Democrats, including DNC Chairman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, would just strip the CFPB of its ability to to enforce this law. It would nullify its regulation uh, and then force it to go through some big, long, onerous study uh, to, before it could do something like this again. Um, it is explicitly a bill for racism in auto lending and car purchasing. It is about charging borrowers of color more money, and 88 Democrats just voted for it. Well, I imagine the Congressional Black Caucus was up in arms about this. Well, there were. I mean, there, there were people in the Congressional Black Caucus who were up in arms about this. The Congressional Progressive Caucus was up in arms against it. But there were also people in the Congressional Black Caucus who were fine with it. There were 15 members who were co-sponsors of the bill who came from either the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, or KPAC, which is the caucus for, uh, for, for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in, in, in Congress. 15 of those were co-sponsors of the bill. And Maxine Waters, who's the, the top, uh, top Democrat on the House Financial Services Committee, whipped really hard against this, made a big deal. The president issued a statement saying he was strongly opposed, but did not go far enough to say that he would veto it. 
Uh, and that apparently was enough to let people keep their positions. Uh, Shaheen, um, I kind of, I, I have strong feelings about this. I mean, I get used to being grossed out by some of the stuff that happens on the financial services committee, but this one, this one really bothers me. Uh, I mean, what, the, the, can, can you lay out some of the interest groups here for people? Like, you know, who, what, when, when the NAACP is saying this is a bad idea, like who is it that tells Congress actually this is a good idea? Uh, the auto dealers <laughs> and, I mean, the car dealerships and financial institutions. Uh, but mostly it's car dealerships. And the reason for that is because dealer markets are pretty lucrative for them. And let's face it, there is a car dealership in every congressional district. Every member of Congress has at least one car dealership in his or her district. And car dealerships are owned by usually small business owners, um, and they donate lots of money to campaigns, and they get lots of face time with members of Congress, and they really, really hate this provision. And they successfully convinced more than 300 members of Congress to vote for it. And I know, you know a lot of folks may think that the Senate may not take this up, and this will never become law, but when you see something pass the House with 300-plus votes, I don't know, man. I, I kind of feel like the Senate could actually send this legislation to the president's desk. I, I think it's I think it's actually uh, a little more subtle and maybe a little worse than that because we're we're coming up on the end of the year where there are going to be some spending bills that have to be approved and when you see eighty eight Democrats voted for something and three hundred members of Congress voted for it that's that's like that that becomes hey look this is about as uncontroversial as legislation gets in terms of partisan relations right so I mean think so about it. Ryan, it's bipartisan now right yeah, right yeah bipartisan. now is the sheen of has the sheen of if that's the thing that people a lot of people don't understand is that. Typically, these days, when we have a bill that's bipartisan, that bill does something terrible, <laughs> or or it, or it names a post office, or it names a post office after somebody terrible. <laughs> it's, I mean, it it, it 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 is true. Like people people like bipartisanship. It's supposed to be something that is it's vastly that is good, overrated. Oftentimes, it just means corporate favors. But here, I mean, th- those spending bills. This happened a year ago. Right. Remember that there's a swaps push out fight. Elizabeth Warren was really, really out in front on this, making making a big stink about it. Uh, And they almost ended up rejecting the government funding legislation over it because there was a provision that was inserted into this big package of spending bills that subsidized the riskiest derivatives trades that Wall Street makes. And it was nuts. It was totally nuts. But it passed because people didn't want to shut down the government over it. So this is something where Republican and when that happened, John Boehner said, oh, I don't I don't think there's any Wall Street subsidy in here. You know, this this was bipartisan. There were 92 Democrats who voted for this on the House floor. And here they'll be able to make the exact same argument and including Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the chair of the DNC. Uh, so, so the idea that there's not some like uh, like important democratic seal of approval on this, uh, I I think is 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 wrong. This this is definitely in the running for something that could make it into a spending bill at the end of the year, and and the dealers would be thrilled. They'd be like, great, great. We it's it's so excellent that we have lobbied on this. I mean, I think I like your point, Shaheen, about the dealers, but isn't it, it it's it's not just that the dealers are acting alone, right? There there are still banks who benefit from this as well, right? Absolutely. I mean, Ally Bank, which is one of the institutions that settled with the CFPB over allegations that it, you know, that it charged borrowers of color more than similarly situated white borrowers. Um, Ally Financial, they used to be GM's uh, financing arm. Like, they used to be GM Financial. They're now a bank. They're a separate financial institution. But they still make boatloads of money off lending to lending to Americans who want to go buy cars. And the banks really hate this provision. And the reason for that, that they argue 
is that there is no discriminatory pricing, that dealers don't intentionally overcharge um, borrowers of color, African-Americans, Hispanics, Asians, etc. They will argue that, look, these people, these borrowers, they have lower credit scores, they put less money down when they buy the car, so it's natural uh, that they would pay more to borrow. And frankly, from the financial institution's perspective, they argue, look, we don't know what's going on, right? It's the dealership that's doing this. We're, you know, we're just processing paperwork. The, you know, the dealership, they charge more, they've probably got a good reason. I mean, that's, that's kind of the argument they're making. And the reason why they hate this is because, let's face it, no financial institution in the country, no publicly traded company in the country wants to be accused by the federal government of discriminatory lending or hurting, uh, you know, borrowers of color or certain communities in the country. But this and is what so happened like, during the financial crisis, right? I mean, banks would say, look, we didn't have anything to do with this. They were just lending out our money, these mortgage brokers who were doing terrible things to people. You know, it, was, it wasn't us. We, we can't possibly have any policies or controls to deal with that. And then the CFPB comes out and says, look, just make sure it's not racist, okay, and you'll be fine. But, you know, people in the, same, in the same credit situation, and they're, they're pushing to repeal that, that, that guidance and, and, and to strip the CFPB of its enforcement. And it's... It's it's just, I mean like they they make these arguments and and they're persuasive to people on Capitol Hill I think because people on Capitol Hill are just used to being lobbied by these people and like you said Sheen they get FaceTime from the auto dealers they get FaceTime from community banks they get FaceTime from from bankers all the time and and it just seems like these these are people they're used to talking to who they trust and they say no 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 trust us we're not doing anything racist and maybe they don't think that they are right it just so happens that in lawsuit after lawsuit. These things keep coming in uh, as as racist. So if the CFPB can't do anything about this and Congress is just going to roll over for these racist lending practices, what recourse do consumers have at this point? I mean, none. I mean, look, if, if this gets stripped, there's no I mean, you can you can choose not to buy the car, but you don't even know. This is happening to you when it happens to you. You talk to the guy at the at the dealership and he tells you, here's the interest rate. And you say, all right, I guess that sounds about right. And if, if you don't if you don't like the interest rate, you can go somewhere else. But you don't know that you're you're paying you know half a point higher than a white borrower when that's happening. They don't they don't th- throw a whole bunch of paperwork at you and statistics about okay, here here here's the markup that you're getting because I'm looking at you kind of funny right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> they don't say that. <laughs> so it's, it's true. The very nature of fraud, it, you don't know that it's occurred until after the transaction's been completed, right? Yep. Like no one voluntarily is like, oh, come defraud me. <laughs> maybe there are some people who who are like that uh but i haven't met any of them look maybe there is a good argument that the that the banks and the dealerships are making that we haven't heard yet sure or maybe there are statistics that are actually in their favor and there are other reasons that explain you know disparate pricing you know look maybe there are legitimate reasons but what this like Here's something like I think people should be thinking about. How often do you think members of Congress actually spend talking to their constituents? And not just their constituents, but, like, their poor constituents, right? Like, how often are they going and talking, like, knocking on doors and talking to people and asking about their experience with financial institutions? Like, I mean, how, how often do you think that really happens? And then compare that to how much time they spend with lobbyists, and other interest groups that represent financial institutions. And how often they represent, they talk to financial institutions themselves. That, that derivatives bill that you mentioned, uh, the provision that made it into the spending bill last year, Jamie Dimon, the chairman and chief executive officer of JPMorgan Chase, personally made calls to members of Congress 
during that debate yeah. to persuade them to vote for this. Yep. Right? Like, how, I mean, do you think, I mean, if I want to call my member of Congress and tell him or her to vote a specific way, like, you think I could call them on their cell phone right now? No. You think I could actually, like, make my case as, like, as just a regular constituent? No. No. Life is pain. Life is pain. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced edited and engineered by Adriana Ucero with Peter James Callahan with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Bulguki, La Femme Formidable. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Massachusetts representatives Jim McGovern, as well as Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Jessica Schulberg. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash so that happened. Please check us out and check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store while you're there. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. Ne vous laissez pas manipuler, s'il vous plaît.